Du lyssnar på Framgångspodden i samarbete med Ekost. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Det här avsnittet presenteras i samarbete med Framgångsakademin som är Sveriges största tjänst för personlig utveckling och karriär. Och de har nu lanserat Framgångsakademins app där du kan kolla på alla kurser direkt i mobilen vart du än befinner dig. Här har du Sveriges främsta experter samlade på en och samma plats i syfte att utveckla dig. I och med detta har vi tagit fram ett once in a lifetime erbjudande där du får gå utbildningar helt gratis första månaden följt av 80% rabatt som du sedan behåller hur länge du vill. Det är alltså ingen bindningstid eller uppsägningstid. Nu är det enbart 500 stycken som får det här erbjudandet så det är först till kvarn som gäller. Allt handlar om att inte stå stilla på samma ställe utan istället utvecklas. Och vill du vidare i livet så är det absolut billigaste och bästa sättet du kan göra det på. Det är ett enkelt sätt att levla upp både din karriär och dig själv. Så vad väntar du på? Gå in på kampanj.framgangsakademin.se och signa upp dig direkt. Alltså kampanj.framgangsakademin.se Hej mina framgångsvänner. Här kommer ett bonusavsnitt med en fantastisk entreprenör som heter Navin Tukaron. Han har gjort fem exits och bland annat sålt ett bolag till Yahoo för över 50 miljoner dollar som är deras dyraste appköp någonsin. Han är en investor från Silicon Valley och en riktigt grym person som kör mycket föreläsningar. Jag träffade honom och kände att jag verkligen ville ha med han i podden. Jag kommer då och då nu ta stora internationella personer. Detta är ett bonusavsnitt och är på engelska så det vanliga avsnitten kommer ut på onsdag morgon som vanligt. Jag hoppas ni gillar det för han är en riktigt fantastisk person så har en riktigt grym lyssning nu. Har det fint så länge. Nu kör vi igång. Welcome ladies and gentlemen, let me introduce you to maybe one of the biggest podcasts in the world. Fram Gangspotten med Alexander Perleros. 
Welcome to episode 67 of Framgångspodden. In today's episode, meet an incredible human being named Navin Tukkaram. Navin is a Silicon Valley investor and entrepreneur, having completed five exits representing over $3 billion in value. Navin was seed investor, chief operating officer and board member of Quickie, a mobile video startup that won TechCrunch Disrupt in Silicon Valley. We are talking about the incredible story of how Quickie was sold to Yahoo for over $50 million dollars. We also learn valuable tips for running a startup and managing your career. Let me introduce you to the amazing investor and entrepreneur, Mr. Navin Tukkaran. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen. Let me introduce you to Fram Gangspotten with Alexander Paleros. Welcome to the podcast, Navin Tukkaran. Yetebra, nice to be here. <laughs> was it right? That, that was that was pretty close. Indian Indian name with a Swedish accent. <laughs> it's really nice, Navin, to have you here in the podcast. It's uh, awesome. How you do? Yetebra, Somari Sverige. Somari Sverige. Can you speak good Swedish? Engelska, yeah. Uh, men uh, jag jag pratar svenska nu. Lite. <laughs> du pratar lite svenska. Jag förstår inte mycket, men jag tycker om Sverige och svenska mycket. <laughs> That's really good. But I heard that uh, many people who live in uh, uh, like LA or New York, they go to Miami, but you go to Sweden. You go to Stockholm. Yeah, I've been coming to Stockholm for quite a few years. I originally came because, you know, my dad used to live in Denmark when he was younger. Um, so my first ever alcohol was schnapps, not here in Sweden, <laughs> but in Scandinavia, in Aarhus, Denmark. It's uh, a bit of a crazy story. When my dad was in India and finished college, he got a job at an engineering factory because he was an engineer in college. But he didn't really want to be just an engineer. He wanted to always own his own company. But in India back in those days, it was very hard to leave the country. If you had a job, a good paying job in India, even today, but back in those days, you'd won the game of life. You were doing very, very well. But he always wanted to start his own business either in the US or in Europe somewhere. But it was just so hard back then. So one day he was walking around the factory floor of this engineering company, and he noticed this machine that wasn't doing anything. It was broken. And why would you notice a machine that's broken? But since my dad was so focused on leaving India, he just started to check it out and realized there was a huge nameplate on the machine that said some funny address in a place called Denmark, wherever this place Denmark is. <laughs> But since my dad was so focused, he actually wrote the company in Denmark and basically said, hey, look, India is a poor country. We don't have a lot of money here. You got to teach me how to use this broken machine and sent off the letter, not really expecting any response. But about a month later, he got a funny looking envelope in the mail and he opens it up and it's actually a letter from that company. And it awesome. says, yeah, it's, it's really kind of crazy. And it says something like this. It goes... Hey, thanks for your letter. Uh, we actually will teach you how to use this machine. We'll even pay you, maybe it was something like 500 kroner a month <laughs> while he's there. But we won't pay for your plane ticket. So that sounds pretty good. But since my dad had absolutely no money, he had no money for a plane ticket. And I'm not even sure if there was foreign exchange between 
India and Denmark back in those days. So it was a nice try, but it was really a no. But my dad is entrepreneurial, even amongst other entrepreneurs. So he decided to do something that most of us would think is pretty crazy. He decided to sell his motorcycle, which is all he had, and then borrow the same amount of money from a family friend, which so a lot of money for him, and then liquidate his dad's entire life savings just to buy a one-way ticket to Denmark. But what he didn't tell his family or friends is that he didn't actually have a job in Denmark. He had a 90-day work permit, which meant after 90 days, he was going to be deported back to India with no job, no life savings, and no motorcycle. That's crazy. It is a crazy story. But he said, hey, you know, I'll figure it out when I get to Denmark, wherever this place Denmark is. And you can probably tell by the fact that I'm here talking on your podcast that the story ends pretty well. He ended up convincing that company to hire him full time and then worked in Denmark for a while and then in Germany and then in Canada and finally made it to the U.S. And he worked in the U.S. for about seven years before saving up enough money to start his first company. That's great. That's awesome. And it become a really good company, too. Yeah, over time... That company was around for at least 20 years and ended up employing maybe a thousand people. And he's probably created one or two thousand jobs in his career. So it's so cool. Really cool. It's amazing when you're focused on one goal and one mission and committed what can happen. Really good. So good story. So you guys ended up in America. Where did you live in America? So I grew up in a place called Northbrook, Illinois, which is a sort of a nice suburb outside Chicago. Went to public school all the way from grade school to high school. And my pretty much my life was very simple. I, I Unfortunately, I don't have any stories of, um, you know, doing cocaine when I was six years old or something <laughs> that might be exciting for your listeners. I had a pretty boring childhood, which consisted pretty much of trying to get straight A's and playing a lot of golf. So I was a competitive golfer. You're when not I was a street fighter or something? I was not a street fighter like you, no. No, okay, okay, okay. But you have been a golfer? I've been a golfer, and I was a pretty good golfer. It ended up helping me get into college at Princeton, but never good enough to be a pro. But it taught me a lot of mental focus, because anyone who's played golf, whether you're good or you're bad, you know, it's a very frustrating sport, and you need to maintain your focus for four or five hours during competition, sometimes two days in a row. It's It's very taxing mentally. So I think that helped me a lot in business over time. So I actually didn't start my career in Silicon Valley. I actually started a career, my career on Wall Street in investment banking in New York City. And I'm not sure if you've had any Wall Street bankers on the show yet, but Wall Street, I was only there for about two years, but it taught me the how intense I could be at work and how intense you have to work to be successful. And it was I mean, you're talking about working from 9, 10 in the morning till 2, 3 in the morning every every day, seven days a week for weeks on end. I mean, it's a very miserable existence. But at the same time, you learn a ton because you're learning three times as you're learning as much in one year as you would in three years at some other job. That's right. So you were on Wall Street for two years. So uh, what happened? So I was on Wall Street for two years and then moved over to private equity and then was in private equity in New York for two years as a junior investor, and then went back to business school at Harvard. And, you know, when you go to Harvard, you assume that you're going to get a good job 
afterwards. But the reality was this was 2003, which was two years after 9-11. So it was a very dark time for America. We were at war. There was a recession. Yeah. It was not a happy, a happy time. And it wasn't a happy time in the job market either. It was the toughest job market that anyone had seen in their careers, at least the last 20 or 30 years. So I was coming up on graduation. A week before graduation, I had no job. No job. No job. That was not fun. Fortunately, during graduation week, so even just maybe a couple days before we walked with our uh, graduation robes, I got two job offers. And it was really one of those things where your decision is going to shape your destiny depending on what you decide. One was a very standard offer to go to Goldman Sachs in New York and be in their private equity group there. The other one was actually to go out to Seattle, Washington, which is not known for finance because there's no finance there really, to help start a private equity fund for Paul Allen. Paul Allen, as you may know, is the co-founder of Microsoft along with Bill Gates. Obviously very wealthy at the time was probably the number three or number five richest person in America. But at the same time, when you're starting anything new, it's going to be hard. And most things like that usually fail, especially when you're talking about investing. There's no investment process necessarily. None of the team has worked together. And this was a very high risk situation if I chose to go to Seattle. And what did you choose? You know, I just couldn't see myself being a cog in the wheel for years and years and years in New York just to get a brand name on my resume, even though that probably would have worked out fine. I decided to take a big risk and go help Paul start this private equity firm. Awesome. How was it? Uh, it, it was a lot of ups and downs, and I was not prepared to work quite that hard coming out of business school as I did out of college, because you're not, usually it doesn't happen that way. But basically, I moved to Seattle, moved into a, and I had no money because I had all my debt from business school. I moved into a uh, one-bedroom apartment with rented furniture overlooking an alley. So, and the alley ha- was one of the alleys with where they keep the garbage cans. So sometimes early in the morning, the garbage truck would come and sort of wake you up. It wasn't like the most fun existence. It actually didn't matter, though, because I was always in the office working. Mm-hmm. So, that's so that's how I started after after business school. Unfortunately, our investments did quite well. And about four years later, somehow I ended up being the number two guy in a $2 billion fund. And most of that fund was created through appreciation. We invested about half a billion dollars of capital, and it was worth well over $2 billion four or five years later. Really cool. Most of our investments were in the energy sector, so not technology at all. It was oil and gas pipelines, oil and gas terminals, or storage facilities. So things that moved oil and gas around America and Canada every single day. Do you know very much about uh, pipelines and oil? Well, once upon a time, I was an expert. So I used to know quite a bit about it. So you were an investor in uh, energy companies. So how did you uh, start investing in tech? I'm a trend-based investor. So I look for big macro trends that I think are going in one direction and are going to be long-term And I try to invest in companies that sit at the intersection of big major trends. So in the energy sector, we saw that oil at the time when we started investing was around 30. We thought that oil was going to go up from there over the next few years, which it did. We also thought that 
energy demand was going to continue to increase every year because it had for the last 20 years, at least in America. So you had two big trends in our favor. That was the that was a lot of the thesis, or at least part of the thesis for energy investments and pipelines. After uh, the success of Vulcan Capital Private Equity, I had a lot of flexibility, frankly, to do other things. And I decided to basically switch from investing in large cash flow-based energy companies to small angel investments in tech companies. And I have to tell you, a lot of people thought I was crazy because why would you go from a sector that you know very well, that you're recognized in, that you've been successful in, and do something, at least from an investment perspective, that's totally different. And I just thought that this was in 09, 010 timeframe. I just thought that when I analyzed where the United States was, was going to be successful over the next 10 or 20 years, it seemed to me that technology was the place to be. And this was not that obvious back then, because remember, this is right after the collapse. So no one's feeling good about any sector back then, um, much less some of the growth sectors. But I thought that the U.S. has the talent, it had the institutions, the capital, the entrepreneurial spirit, and of course, the major incumbent tech companies that were going to be a powerhouse in technology for a very long time. So my very first investment in technology was a company called Quickie, where I ended up being a seed investor, then an advisor, and then ultimately became chief operating officer and a board member as well. And what did Quickie do? So Quickie was a mobile technology company that created an algorithm that automatically created videos from any type of media. So just imagine Wikipedia, for example. Instead of reading Wikipedia, what if you could watch it? What would that look like? It would probably look like a bunch of pictures coming together in real time, maybe some videos, maybe a narrated robot voice would tell you what's happening, but you would play it. You wouldn't read the words. You would just play it, and, right. and it would look like a robot was telling you all about whatever topic. Well, that was Quickie's first product. And we're on a podcast, so I can't show you, but I can tell you that it was a, a very visually stimulating experience. And that was what Quickie was dedicated to, automatically creating videos. Yeah. And you were winning the, the tech crush? Well, it was, a, it was a hard road. So we actually got the opportunity to launch at TechCrunch Disrupt because Silicon Valley was such a small place back then. People, like, people that are on the cover of magazines today, they would just be around trying to live their dream. Drew Housen from Dropbox lived in my building. Mark Zuckerberg used to have lunch at this terrible burrito place down the street from our office. <laughs> so people started talking about Quickie. It was a very small community. And so because of that, we got the opportunity to launch at the TechCrunch Disrupt finals. So at the time, TechCrunch Disrupt really was the only tech competition in the world that matters. Now there are so many, you can't keep track. But back then, that was pretty much it. So every single VC, angel investor, engineer, everybody watched TechCrunch Disrupt. That sounds like a lot of pressure. Yeah, it was. And it was an interesting decision for the company when we got the opportunity because at that time, we just had one problem. We didn't have a product. Small problem. <laughs> so, yeah, we had, a, we had a beta product that was fantastic, but it definitely was not ready for prime time. So we had a choice, which was that, do you launch a TechCrunch Disrupt and risk failing in front of every person in your entire industry? If you do that, you're pretty much done. Or do you try to rush the product and get it 
good enough to present, maybe 90%, maybe 95%, you don't know yet. Do you do that and launch anyway? And the company eventually made the decision that we should launch and go for it because the marketing value of being on stage at TechCrunch, you could never recreate as a small startup. Yeah. So we had to go for it. And sometimes when you have a great team focused on one goal and you're all aligned, great things happen. So we actually won TechCrunch Disrupt in 2010 in Silicon Valley. And that was definitely an unbelievable highlight for Quickie. What happens after that? Well, after that, a lot of the VCs clearly were interested in investing in Quickie. And so we thought that, and we made the rounds in a rental car up and down Sand Hill Road, we thought that it was going to be no problem raising money because we were, at that point in time, the hottest tech company on the planet. This was 2000... This is end of 2010. Yeah. In the world of technology, it sound, some of your users, uh, your listeners might think six years is a long time. Some of them might think it's a short time. But in the world of technology, it's eons ago. Eons ago. If, you can, if we can even imagine a world where Uber's in one city, that's the world we lived in when Quickie was being launched. So we're going up and down Silicon Valley, and I remember one partner meeting where all the partners clapped after the presentation, and we're thinking, oh, yeah, of course, they're going to give us a term sheet. Well, we went to – we didn't realize that sometimes venture capitalists don't tell you exactly what they're thinking. If you've watched uh, some of the show Silicon Valley, you know what I'm talking about. So we only got a couple term sheets after spending all the time with VCs. They weren't bad, but they weren't what we wanted. So we had to think a little bit out of the box. And what we ended up doing is going back to some of our angel investors and asking, hey, would they want to invest a lot more money in Quickie now that we were more of, a, more of a proven technology, or at least proven by the standards of TechCrunch Disrupt? And it turned out the answer was yes. So we ended up raising a $9 million super angel round, which It's pretty unusual now for a Series A to do that, but back then it was very, very unusual yeah. from some very good investors, from uh, Eduardo Saverin from Facebook, the co-founders of Groupon, co-founders of YouTube. Really cool. And some other, yeah, some other great investors that you may not know their names, but great investors in Silicon Valley. Yeah. So we were very fortunate to get that done. So you're in Silicon Valley and you raise all this money. That must felt like this is the best thing ever. And you know what? The problem was, for a little while, it did. It felt great. We had huge 7,000-square-foot, I guess, 700-meter offices with 20-foot ceilings. Um, we moved from our garage in San Francisco. So our first office in Silicon Valley was in Palo Alto, California. And the office was literally a garage next to a Persian rug shop. And on one of our walls, we had these these dirty, nasty Persian rugs that... <laughs> that clearly no one wanted to buy. That's why they were decorating the walls. But our landlords were great, and the rent was really cheap. Yeah. The problem was in the winter, sometimes when it was raining, the rain would come in, the wind would come in through the garage door. It was a mess. But still great offices. And there was another startup I know that started in those same offices, a startup called Google. So there was some good karma in that office. No shit. But after we raised all the money, we ended up moving the company to San Francisco into these nice fancy offices and we felt pretty good about ourselves. What we didn't realize, we should have known, but we didn't realize that the hard part was yet to come. Winning TechCrunch, clearly very hard. Raising the money, frankly, even harder. 
but taking a technology, turning it into a product, creating a business model, and generating revenue, that, that turned out to be extremely hard. So what happened when you launched the product? So actually a lot of good things when we launched that first product that turned Wikipedia into a series of little movies. For every single Wikipedia entry, you had a quickie giving you a video on that topic. That product won um, Search App of the Year from Apple, had millions of downloads, had close to a five-star rating on the App Store. So it did awesome. extremely well. The problem was, when's the last time anyone paid for Search? I'm not. I, I'm sure none of your listeners are saying I pay for search because no one out there Never. pays for search. So how do you make money long term on that product? We couldn't figure out how. You have to wait till you have a certain amount of engagement and users to really have ads. Otherwise, you lose all your users. So it was growing, but it hadn't reached the point to, that it made sense to put ads. And it may have taken a couple of years to get that big. But of course, we didn't give up. We had that core engine. We had some of the first foundational engineering around the automated creation of videos. So we took that engine and we opened it up and we let users create their own videos through a really cool web-based drag and drop interface. You drag some pictures, drag some videos, you could add some video narration and you could create a video in a few minutes and it would look pretty professional, but it would cost nine, it would cost 1% of what it would cost to produce a professional video. All right, cool. And that product did pretty well too. It won a couple awards. Some very major media companies in New York were using it. We launched it with ABC News, NBC, Hearst, Time. I mean, a bunch of different companies, big ones. But what we didn't know, since we were maybe naive tech guys in Silicon Valley, that while these were multi-billion dollar companies, none of the newsrooms had a budget to pay for news technology. They just didn't. So while they happily used it for free, they didn't want to pay for it. All right. And by this time, we had moved the company all the way to New York City from the Valley because we wanted to be closer to our customers. So it made more sense to be in the center of media, which is New York. All right. So you have two companies. Two products, yeah. Two products. That that are not making money. All right. And by this time... We'd probably burn through close to $9 million of cash. We raised a total of ten and a half, one and a half in an angel round, and then the $9 million that I mentioned after TechCrunch. But we burned through nine, so we have about maybe $1.5 million left. This is sort of middle, of middle of 2012. And as the guy who's responsible for payroll, this is a very stressful situation. I understand. Uh, I was responsible for all the business side. My partner, Doug, who's really tech visionary, product genius, amazing guy, he was responsible for all the technology and product design, that stuff. I was responsible for maybe the boring stuff, the business, hmm. business, some of the strategy, sales, which I didn't have any of, and uh, financing side, personnel, things like that. So as the guy who's responsible for payroll, I just didn't see how we were going to generate any revenue um, in the next six or 12 months to be able to start paying our team when the current cash on our balance sheet ran out. We only had about nine months of cash, maybe 12 if we stretched it in the bank. Okay. So what did you do? So we came up with what I can only describe as a crazy plan. And it started out as, as a plan. So I'll let your listeners 
Um, I'm curious what they think about this plan. We were going to shut down both our products, the ones that we spent two years and $9 million building. Just shut them both down. We knew our board was going to think we're absolutely crazy. Then we would have to do what no startup executive wants to do. We'd have to lay off half our team. Not because we wanted to. We These were great, great people. But we just couldn't afford them anymore. And then we're going to take our remaining resources, our precious cash, and we're going to put all that cash on a new product, one that has yet to be built, an iPhone app. Of course, we all know that the iPhone app store has millions of apps. Yeah. So the competition in the app store is very intense. Because of that, we felt we had to win Apple Editor's Choice. And I'm not sure how it works now, but back then, it was like winning a tech Oscar. One app per week would win Apple Editor's Choice. Usually, it was going to be an established app, like The Economist or Time or someone like that. Rarely was it a small startup. And the reason why we had to win Apple Editor's Choice is because we had no marketing dollars. So that would be our marketing. But... While that would have been hard enough, that wasn't enough because, again, we didn't have much time left in the bank. So we had to win Apple Editor's Choice. We had to hopefully get a lot of users, and then we had to sell the company, all within a 9- or 12-month period. It's <laughs> crazy. And if, if anyone's heard of a crazier story in business, I'd love to hear it because I, I thought that was pretty crazy, and our, our board did too. And you might say, you know, well, of course you, you go ahead with that plan, but we actually had a choice. doesn't sound like a good choice, but in theory, a lot of companies might just quietly fail because when you quietly fail, you can get maybe funded in some other company in the future. If you take your remaining resources and launch an iPhone app and then put a lot of press around it and then you go away six months later, everyone would have thought we were idiots. But we decided that you know, we weren't there to protect our careers, obviously. We were there to return our investors' capital, make them a return. Obviously, we're there to support our employees and hopefully find them a better home after, in theory, we get acquired. That's why we were there. So we decided to go ahead with this crazy plan. We shut down both of our products. We laid off a bunch of our team, and we started working on this iPhone app. So we go dark for a few months, and while the engineers are crunching out this new iPhone app... And months go by. Obviously, things always get delayed in technology. You sort of expect that. And now we're in 2013. And on February 1st, 2013, we didn't have any products in the market. We had no revenue. And we had to go through laying off half our team. A week later, February 7th, we were announced as the Apple Editor's Choice winner for that week. That's so crazy. So since I wasn't coding, obviously, I was sitting there on my iPhone, like hitting refresh over and over and over and over and over again, waiting for the app store to refresh because it refreshed every Thursday at exactly 4 p.m. Eastern time. So everyone started shouting and yelling in the office after we won. It was an amazing feeling. And just another example of when you have a clear mission and you have a great team aligned on one goal, great things can happen. And what happens then? So we were obviously a lot smarter after two or three years in the business. And we knew that just winning a uh, App Store award was great, but it wasn't going to be enough. So we had to figure out what to do, assuming the app got a lot of downloads. And fortunately, because our team was so awesome, 
our first version of the app basically didn't crash. It scaled well as things grew. So we got very fortunate that the team did such a great job. So we got hundreds of thousands of downloads in just the first few days because of all the um, Apple Editor's Choice exposure. Every person in 30 or 40 countries around the world, the first thing they saw when they opened up the App Store was Quickie. That's awesome. Which is, pr- really which is cool. pretty, pretty unbelievable. It was a great, great week. And of course, because of that notoriety and the press around it, TechCrunch articles, et cetera, all the big boys started calling. It's not, it's not confidential. There's only like six or seven companies that can buy these startups. So it's all the Googles and the Facebooks and the Yahoos and Instagram within Facebook and all these, all these types of companies started calling us. And how did it feel? It felt very good, but we were under a lot of pressure because this, at this point in time, we could measure our cash in the bank, not in months, but in weeks. Okay. And it sounds like, maybe it sounds like some of your listeners, why are these guys always running out of money? Well, when you run a, start, a startup, you always think that way. You always think like, when am I going to run out of money? And what do I have to do before that happens to either get revenue or raise more money or do something yeah. before that happens? So that's all, when you're the finance guys at a startup, you're the, when you're the COO, that's always what you're thinking about. So that was certainly on our mind. And fortunately, we got a lot of interest and I started negotiating with Yahoo just a few weeks after we launched the app. And it was a very challenging position to be in. It was a great position because we might be able to sell the company, but it was a hard position because Yahoo is a very professional organization. They know exactly what they're doing. They have teams of people in legal, HR, obviously corporate acquisitions in finance, accounting, probably a few others I'm forgetting, teams of people, teams of experts in each of these areas. And they're all looking to find problems or issues in the deal. That's their job. They're trying to figure out what's wrong with the company, what's right with the company, et cetera. That's right. So on our side, we had a team of one, me. (laughs) And so I actually convinced two of my former interns to fly back and not have... They, I think they were, it was, it was in the summer, so they had vacation, to not take their summer vacation for a month and sit in a conference room at Quickie with me and work on what I told them would be a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to learn how it is to sell a startup. So it was me and, and two interns, and the other side of the table, it was Yahoo and their team of experts. So it was a, it was a challenging situation, to say the least. That's a crazy, awesome story. But over time, we got... We built confidence with the other side, and I had a rule at in our little three-person team, which which was that any time Yahoo gave us a diligence list, we would return it in 24 hours. So because of that, we were they obviously they were very happy. We were being very responsive, but by doing that, we built a lot of momentum within all these different groups within Yahoo. So now you had different people checking off on the deal, saying, "Yeah, this is a good deal. Yeah, this is a good deal," and now the deal has its own momentum. Okay. No one wants to be the person that's going to kill a deal where 20 other people like it, and no one wants to slow it down. You don't want to be the guy slowing down a deal, right? Yeah, that's right. So that we tried to create that Smart. momentum for the transaction, not only on our side, but on their side as well. And like I said, February 1st, 2013, we had absolutely nothing. July 2nd, 2013, just five months later, We were sold to Yahoo for $50 million in what I think is still Yahoo's largest mobile app acquisition ever. So that's how fast things can change in Silicon Valley. One day, you think you might be a zero, and the next day, you're a hero 
and you're a big win for your investors and your employees. I was thinking, what are we going to do if we lose all our investors' money and we lose all our employees' jobs? That's what that's all I was focused on. So it was obviously an amazing day, but it was, I think, as much or more of a relief than it was exhilaration. I want to be at tip-top mental shape when I'm working on things because you never know what could show up in your email inbox in the morning when you have a bunch of startups. For me, though, everything starts with health. So the first thing I do is get my health right. And in the morning, actually, the first thing I do is have water with lemon and apple cider vinegar and three drops of oregano oil. Now, I can tell you what the lemon does. I can't actually can't tell you what the other two do because I learned it when I was staying over one of your fellow podcasters' house in California, Tim Ferriss. All right. And he did it for for three days in a row. So I'm like, you know what? If he does it, I'm going to do it. Okay. I know that that in general, it's a it helps your body detox, especially the lemon. So detoxing first thing in the morning is probably a good thing. And then after that, I have a protein shake. I have a chocolate vega protein, which is which is uh, vegan. I add a little MSM, which is good for your joints. MSM is really good. I take it too. You do? Nice. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, I'm not as a serious athlete as you, but I take it anyway. And then I usually add a handful of blueberries for antioxidants and sometimes maybe some green powder, sometimes a banana, right. just different things. That's but, good. But I, at least I know that every day I have my bases covered. I have some basic nutrition, no matter what happens during that day. If I have to fly to Sweden, I still know that I had one decent meal during the day. Good. Do you yes. have some other routine to get in focus and perform on your highest level? Yeah, so after I have my water and my shake, I do a routine that uh, Tony Robbins teaches, which is 15 minutes to fulfillment, which basically is a combination of thinking what you're grateful for and visualizing what you want to have have happen in that day. And it doesn't have to be anything... Are you do it in the morning? You do it in the morning. All right. I'm usually super hungry in the morning, so first I have the shake, and then I do do this, and... It doesn't need to be something crazy, like I'm going to be president of the United States or whatever it is for you. But like today, when I was doing that, I was thinking about, all right, I want Alexander to be happy with this podcast take. Oh, so good. I was just thinking about I like it. that was just the energy I was putting out there. And it all sounds a little California funny, but really it, what it's meant to do is just train your subconscious. Because we all have this subconscious mental story going on in the background, which 99% of people do not have control of. And I'm, I definitely don't have control of it most of the time either. But you want to manage that subconscious voice that's telling you, I can't do this, or I'm a certain way, or life is a certain way, yeah. or people are a certain way, or just all that BS. You want to control that, that voice and make it work for you, not work against you. So when you do it first thing in the morning, just like doing a meditation or some other practice like that, that some people do, it helps you focus and be happy and like be productive the rest of the day. It's really good. What type of things are you investing in now? So one area I'm really excited about is the cloud. And like we talked about before, I'm a trend-based investor on the energy side. I think we talked about that before. On the quickie side, I saw that video demand was going to increase a lot faster than people thought. Seems obvious now, but if you remember back then, you could barely get your video downloaded on your phone. And I also thought that mobile start smartphone adoption was going to be a lot faster Than people thought as well. You can go back and look at IDC reports and things like that, and I think they only project projected 15 to 25 percent growth rates 
on adoption, I think it turned out to be much, much higher. So I try to invest in the intersection of trends. And I think the biggest trend in technology now is the cloud. The cloud, for your listeners, I might think of the cloud as what mobile was 10 years ago, because it's going to change the way every single person on the planet uses technology. And already as consumers like you and I, we use Gmail or Yahoo Mail or whatever for our yeah. email. We probably use Dropbox and iCloud or both. But for businesses, less than 20% of businesses even have their email in the cloud, which is the most basic application, right? Mm-hmm. For other applications, it's much less. So over time, all these 1 billion business users need to move to the cloud, which is why the cloud's expected to be a $200 billion sector in the next within the next five years. So as I'm looking at this cloud, this once-in-a-generation cloud transition a few years ago, I hooked up with a couple of friends of mine who I'd known at the time for almost 10 years, and they'd started a real cool company called Skykick. And Skykick is basically a cloud software company that helps IT businesses manage and migrate their clients to the cloud. And I was one of the first angel investors and became lead investor shortly after it was founded. And today, four and a half years later, Skykick has 5,000 business customers around the world, which in this sector is a huge number. We've got 120 employees operating out of five offices. And we've raised almost $20 million of capital with no venture capital. It's all super angels. All right. And what is the potential? I think the cloud's the limit for the potential. When you transition industries, you want to make sure that whatever your new role is, whatever your new job is, 75% of what's needed for that job needs to be within your current skill set. So you got to be able to do 75% of that job day one. I call it the 75-25 rule. Not a very creative name, but a good rule. Yeah, yeah. And that's because you need to be able to add value day one to whatever company company or role you're joining. You can't be there just to learn for your own benefit. You got to contribute. And that last 25% can be different from your skill set in many ways. It could be maybe a big promotion. Maybe it could be a new industry. Maybe it could be a startup versus a big company in the same industry. It could be a lot of different things. But make sure that 75% of that job you can already do. Because with careers, careers aren't linear. They don't go in a smooth line up to the right. They work in a step function. You plateau for a while, you master something, and then you make a big jump. And then you hopefully you make that big jump again and again and again. And you don't want to miss one of those jumps. Because you miss one of the jumps, you basically miss the last five years yeah. of progress. That's why you want to make sure every time you are preparing to make another jump, you can really nail that job and do at least 75% of it day one. So what sector do you look at right now? I'm looking at a few sectors. As we talked about, I think the cloud sector is going to be, well, it is a massive sector, but it's growing tremendously. So there will be a lot of opportunities there. We're still in the early stages of what's going to happen in the cloud. Another area I'm invested in, one of my Silicon Valley-based companies is a drone company. Yeah. Drones have a really almost infinite amount of applications because they've gotten so cheap now and they're just only going to get cheaper. And they can do great things like deliver an EpiPen to someone who has some sort of allergic reaction instead of taking half an hour or whatever it might take for an ambulance to get there. It may take the drone a few minutes 
So there's a lot of great things. And getting your food delivered or shirts delivered by Amazon or some food delivery service via drone is also pretty cool as well, especially for people in remote areas. Yeah. I think there is definitely a scary science fiction side to the drone debate, though, because I read the other week in TechCrunch, I think it was MIT has developed swarming technology where they can program the drones to be aware of each other and basically fly in formation. I don't know why it took MIT. It doesn't sound that hard, but it probably is hard. But either way, it's here. So you could imagine swarms of drones that are each, maybe they only cost $100. Swarms of drones running around a city. It has the GPS. Who's going to stop them? What's the police going to do? Yeah. What's the military going to do? You're going to have to shoot them down, but then you have projectiles in the air, which is also dangerous. Or you could have someone who's a bad actor have a drone with an explosive on it and just drop it at a concert or drop it at a festival. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's really, it's, that's, that technology is already there today. So I think 99% of the applications for drones will be great and will help people. But there's definitely that 1% that can cause some damage. Yeah, I understand that. And um, maybe the, the terrorists are going to use drones when they are so cheap also. Who knows? It's definitely a, a coward's weapon because you can fly it and forget it. You just program it and it does whatever it's going to do. Do you have some other sectors that you look at? Well, I have some other sectors that aren't as scary as the drone sector, yes. Hmm. So one sector I'm invested in is the health and fitness sector. I actually founded a gluten dairy free gluten and dairy free health food company based in New York City called Indie Fresh. And right. uh we're at at Go Indie Fresh is our Instagram handle. So if you want to check that out, please do. Our food is absolutely amazing. So I think health is a new luxury product. There was some stat that said over 70% of Americans, and I'm sure the numbers are similar in Sweden and other Western countries, 70% of Americans are willing to pay a premium for natural or organic products. Right. And now in New York City and other in LA and places like that, you have these highly premium health club experiences like SoulCycle or Barry's Bootcamp where people are paying $30 or $40 just for one class. And you're going to see those here in Stockholm as well pretty soon. It could be food. It could be a health club. It could be something like smart clothing that senses your temperature and your exertion level while you're wearing it. So there's a lot of applications when you combine the technology of things like wearables with an interest and demand for new health experiences. Really interesting. What are your future plans now? So I'm excited to be spending a lot more time here in Stockholm, here in Sweden. I'm planning on living here three or four months a year, actually. It's good. I mean, Sweden has an amazing technology ecosystem. Some of the things that were true and still are true about Silicon Valley are true here in Sweden today. You guys have amazing talent pool, especially on the design side. There's incredible designers here, great engineers. You have proof that Sweden can create major global titans, not yet in technology. Skype and Spotify clearly are by far the biggest, but Silicon Valley is 40 years old and the Stockholm tech scene is seen as much younger. So I think over time, you're going to see more tech giants coming out of Stockholm. And then there's great institutions for education here, but I think what's cool about Sweden, I'm not sure how you all pay for it, but you have subsidized healthcare and basically free education. Yeah. 
So now that startups and entrepreneurship are much more mainstream here in Stockholm than they were, say, 10 years ago, that's a big advantage because entrepreneurs can take risk because they have a social safety net to support them if something goes really bad. Right. That's really good in Sweden. So I'm definitely looking for, I have two and soon to be three investments here in Stockholm. So I'm enjoying that. I spend most of my time advising my companies, advising my investments. And you can imagine I get a lot of just incoming emails, friends of friends or old colleagues that are starting companies that want advice. So I've been doing a lot of that. been doing a lot of speaking here in Stockholm actually too, because I look at speaking as just being on your podcast here, which is a true pleasure. Yeah, it's really good. Thank you very much. So uh, you're available for speaking gigs? <laughs> well, actually, uh, I wasn't. I, w- I didn't know you were going to sell me, Alexander. But um, <laughs> I spoke yesterday at. You are pretty good, actually. Taksimika. I spoke yesterday at uh, Founders Alliance, which I'm sure you've yeah, heard yeah, of. Yeah. A great group of thirty or forty entrepreneurs, amazing entrepreneurs here in, in Sweden, honestly. And then I'll be speaking in Almadalen later this summer as part of the Serendipity Challenge. So a few things. But yeah, if it's a friend of yours, I'm happy to take it. Yeah, that's awesome. Really good. Now it's time for Trey Sister Fregor. And now we have the three last questions. And the first one is one piece of advice to succeed as an entrepreneur. Well, there's probably a more complicated answer than this. But I think the one piece of advice I do give, I think most often... For startups is that as a startup, you can only be great at one thing. Okay. Being good at two things is a great recipe for failure. Right. Because you have limited time, limited resources. Your team only has so much energy in the day. You have to focus everything and everyone on one mission, one goal. That's really good advice. What advice would you give to yourself as the age of 30? <laughs> um Well, at my 30th birthday, actually, I was supposed to be here in Stockholm okay. celebrating. And one of my friends had organized a elaborate few days here. And then I think it was supposed to be a booze cruise down to Tallinn, Estonia. I think there's a boat here, or yeah. some sort of cruise, right? Unfortunately, I was at my desk in Seattle working on a huge deal for Vulcan. All right. So they called me on my birthday They were obviously had a few drinks, and they called me at my desk in Seattle, which is nine hours behind Stockholm. And uh, it wasn't the happiest moment of my life. And in fact, after that, they apparently they they scolded me, they toasted me many times. While during my birthday week, which I did not attend, and they sent me a CD. I guess people actually use CDs back then. They sent me a CD or a DVD of all the pictures from the trip. And you know what I did with it? Never opened it. <laughs> That's a good story. To get in touch with you and follow your exciting life and maybe it is some hot startups, um, what do you recommend? Well, I'm not sure if my life is that exciting, but you can definitely follow me on Twitter at just at Naveen Tukaram, my full name, N-A-V-I-N-T-H-U-K-K-A-R-A-M. And you can also check out my website, ntcap.com, nt capp.com Thank you very much Navin Tukaram to joining us. That has been an awesome hour. Absolute. Tack så mycket. Tack så mycket. Hej då. Hej då. Fram Gangs Body with Alexander Peraleros.
Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.